First Coast Connect with Melissa Ross is sponsored in part by Baptist Health. A nuclear power plant in Georgia delays expansion. Good morning. We're live with you from Studio 2. I'm Melissa Ross, and this is First Coast Connect. Thanks for listening. Just ahead, a look at the future of nuclear power in the U.S. as we keep trying to get off fossil fuels. Give us a call with your thoughts about that. 549-2937. Then later, our new podcast, Bygone Jacks, debuts today, taking you back in time to stories of the city you might not have heard about. We'll speak with the creators. That and more ahead, but first this morning... Georgia Power Company has again delayed the projected startup for two new units at its Vogel nuclear power plant near Augusta. They say its share of the costs will rise by an additional $200 million. Now, a few years ago, our Jacksonville utility, JEA, actually lost a lawsuit in their attempt to get out of a costly agreement for buying power from the plant Vogel nuclear plant. So all of us here in Jacksonville have a stake in this. Now, all of that said... Officials with the Biden administration recently have championed nuclear power. They say it's imperative that America develop a new generation of nuclear plants like the Vogel plant in Augusta. So it got us to thinking, how will nuclear power factor into a future energy mix in this country as the drive continues to get off fossil fuels and decarbonize to combat the impacts of climate change? We're beginning the hour with a closer look as we welcome reporter Dan Garino for Inside Climate News. He's been covering this. Hi, Dan. Uh, Hi. Glad to be here. Good to have you. Also with us, Amanda Bachman, a Ph.D. student in nuclear engineering at the University of Illinois. Her research focuses on transition cycles to fuel cycles with advanced reactors. Amanda, good to have you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And here's our question to callers. What are your thoughts about the expansion of nuclear power in America? Give us a call. 549-2937. That's 549-2937. Emails to firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. Tweets to at Melissa and Jacks. Facebook's open, too. So, Dan, let's begin with you. Uh, you recently spoke with an official uh, in the Joe Biden administration talking about the planned expansion of the Vogel nuclear power plant just across the state line from us in Jacksonville up in Georgia, really talking up the role of nuclear power in the transition to clean energy. What are uh, officials saying about this and how bullish are they? So the Vogel plant is, in a lot of ways, the last plant of a previous way of doing things. Um, and um, because the plant has gone so far over budget and because it's, it's a timeline for completion has gone, they've just kind of blown away every single timetable in terms of when this is going to go online. Um, you're not going to see other companies attempt to do a plant like Vogel, which is a gigantic plant with two big, uh, two reactors, two, two uh, generating units. Um, at the same time, though, even though it may be the last of its kind in the U.S., uh, a nuclear plant of that kind of magnitude, mm-hmm. it's still kind of, after spending so much money, you, you, you want to get something at the end of it. And at the end of all this, they're going to get substantial electricity generation. This will be a gigantic part of the power mix uh, in this region. So, and it's finally going to come online. So it's kind of this sense of relief in a way that a project that has been so just intensely fraught, they're finally going to have something to show for it. So it is this kind of mixed, you know, kind of mixed emotions, um, mixed feelings for promoters of nuclear energy seeing this plant finally come online, Uh, which, you know, of course, we haven't, hasn't happened yet, but it should happen later this year. People might not realize that about a fifth of the country's electricity comes from nuclear power each year. And as you've been writing about uh, the promotion of SMRs or small nuclear reactors, how is that the future for this kind of energy? What do experts in the field say about it and how this gets us to what President Biden has called net zero by the year 2050, net zero carbon emissions? 
So uh, you were referring to this interview I did with uh, Catherine Huff, who's the head of the uh, Office of Nuclear Energy uh, at the Department of Energy. And she and lots of other people involved in nuclear energy, they are talking about this idea of small modular reactors. And the, the, the underlying idea is to find a way to make nuclear power plants in a, in a kind of almost a factory setting where you can, it, it's not really mass production like, you know, in an auto plant or something like that, but you can have more of a modular factory-like way of making reactors and then uh, shipping them off to be installed in various locations. Um, and that would be substantially different from the way that uh, nuclear plants were once done, wh where you have these absolutely gigantic reactors. So we're talking about smaller reactors, and the concept is that this will be safer, cheaper, faster, all of these things that, that we want. But like anything new, we have yet to see anybody really develop this successfully yet. Um, there are a few test projects where you would take a bunch of these small modular reactors and put them at the same site, and altogether they would act, you know, they would function a lot, you know, like a, like a, a nuclear power plant, um, you know, kind of in terms of the way it looks to the grid, it would look a lot like one of these plants that have a gigantic reactor or multiple gigantic reactors. Mm. But the thing that I can't emphasize enough is that... Um, we're at this moment where we're where people are just kind of holding their breath, kind of hoping that this new thing can actually live up to its billing, and we don't really know the answer. We don't know the answer. Let us know your thoughts about nuclear energy. Five four nine two nine three seven, and of course, Dan, uh, Americans have vivid memories of nuclear accidents in the past, Three Mile Island or Chernobyl. How much of that is a factor? in uh, the controversy around nuclear power and expanding it because it is a carbon-free source of power. So, so my sense from having written about this stuff for a while is that those kinds of concerns about safety, they do exist, but I think a much bigger concern is the concerns about the fact that these projects go way over budget. They have gone way over budget. That is their recent track record. And they go way beyond their timeline. So if you think you're going to have a power plant ready by X year, it'll end up being eight years later than that or something like that, you know, where it's just you, you it's very difficult to plan. Um, I think if, if these projects were coming in, even within, you know, a few miles of their budget, as opposed to, you know, <laughs> but much, much further from their budget. And if they were coming in closer to the timeline, the safety issues are less significant, uh, and I think um, the nuclear industry will talk about how it's you know the safest form of power, and they will. Um, and I think to a certain extent, that's kind of there, there's a little bit of kind of just industry promotion happening there. But um, nuclear power is, on the whole, very safe, uh, and those incidents, like you talk about, I think are you know they they indeed are outliers. The issue is that. If there's an issue at a nuclear power plant, it's potentially a really, really big deal. But they just those kinds of issues are not common. We'll go to your calls in a bit at 549-2937. A listener emails the show, new technologies make nuclear power plants much safer. They take a very small land area to produce enormous amounts of energy versus sustainable sources like solar or wind. Well, Amanda Bachman, let's bring you into the conversation, our nuclear engineer, getting your Ph.D. Tell us about your research and how this factors into the overall discussion. Yeah, so my research is less focused on the reactor technology itself and more focused on how do we fuel these reactors, right? So I focus on the nuclear fuel cycle, which is how do we get uranium? How do we process it into a form that we can use in our reactors? And then after it comes out of the reactors, how do we handle that waste? So, you know, a lot of these small module reactors and these advanced reactor designs that a lot of people are looking at, uh, they're going to need very different fuel forms than what uh, our current fleet of nuclear reactors needs. So I'm really looking into, you know, if we deploy these advanced reactors, what are some of those fuel cycle requirements? You know, how much uranium are we going to need? What kind of... Um, 
manufacturing capabilities might we need in order to get it into these different forms. And got any answers? <laughs> what are you finding? <laughs> uh, it really depends on the reactors that we want to deploy. Um, you know, there's a lot of different designs out there. They use a lot of different fuel forms. They use um, a lot of different what we call enrichment levels. So, you know, we need to change those isotopic ratios within our fuel for certain reactors. So it's really dependent on what we want to deploy and how much of it we want to deploy. For people that don't really follow this closely, uh, every 18 to 24 months, it's my understanding, a nuclear power plant must shut down to remove its spent uranium fuel, which becomes radioactive waste. And so That's correct. You, so your research would would modify that process. Is that accurate to say? It's not so much that it's modifying that process. Um, it, it depends on the reactor design that we deploy. So some of these small module reactors and advanced reactors, uh, they will continue to use that same 18-month fueling cycle. So okay. every 18 months shutting down, taking the fuel out, um, and you know, taking care of the waste. But then there are some designs that will utilize online refueling. So we can main, keep the reactor running, keep it producing power, and put new fuel in while taking that old fuel out. So a lot of differences in even how often they'll be needing fuel. Now, currently, nuclear power plants, as I mentioned, they generate about 20% of our energy mix in this country. Are you hopeful as a nuclear engineer that we can increase that amount as technology evolves? Personally, as an engineer, I am hopeful, but also, you know, as a citizen of the U.S. and a citizen of the Earth, I am also hopeful because, you know, it's my personal view that we need nuclear in order to meet some of these climate change goals that we have and emissions goals. And, you know, I really see nuclear as a really key component of it. It's certainly not the only component, but it's, it's a large part of meeting some of these climate change goals and, you know, reducing our carbon emissions. And Dan Garino of Inside Climate News, uh, what do climate scientists say to you about that? What piece of the pie do they see nuclear energy uh, taking up in a future energy mix that gets us to net zero? So the first thing I should say is that this question you're asking is one of the most divisive questions in terms of what our future looks like, what our energy future looks like. Um, so there are those who talk about how we should have 100% renewable energy. Uh, and then there are, um, I mean, I would say more of kind of a realist camp who say um, about 20% of our electricity comes from nuclear now. How in the world are you going to replace that? And how are you going to replace it with something that has some of the attributes of nuclear in, in terms of its ability to be on all the time, beyond 24-7? And I think that's the really tough question, um, uh, whether or not um, we will have more than 20% nuclear in, say, 20 years. I don't know. But the existing nuclear plants that are giving us that share right now are getting pretty old, and they're going to be, need to be replaced. And if you're going to maintain that, say, 20%, you're going to have to build a bunch of new plants. And um, so one way or another, you're going to have to figure out, basically going to have to figure out the role of nuclear in this mix. And I I think that filling that 20% with something else is going to be super, super challenging. But filling it with new nuclear is also going to be super, super challenging. Mm. You basically have this series of really tough choices and in which every kind of pathway, you know, has its own major, major challenges. No easy answers as we talk about the role of nuclear power in a decarbonizing future. What are your questions? 549-2937. Andrew in Jacksonville. Hey, good morning, Andrew. What are your thoughts? So um, I'm really, uh, for our country, not loving nuclear power. I'm kind of confused because uh, the United States Navy has been running nuclear power plants small scale for probably over seven decades without an incident, a perfect safety record. So I think, I don't know if it's a public relations thing or a different uh, form of technology, but I love the uh, the small-scale nuclear reactor theme, and I think that would be uh, a great source of mm -hmm. inspiration to 
really popularize that uh, this has been done. We've been doing it for years and uh, we can do it safely. Thanks, Andrew. Amanda Bachman, you know, well, this is a Navy town here in Jacksonville, and you do hear that argument a lot by proponents of nuclear power. They, they'll point to nuclear submarines. And what about that? Yeah, no, the Navy has a fantastic record with all of their uh, nuclear fleets of submarines and aircraft carriers um, dating back to, you know, the 1950s with the Nautilus being the first one. Um, you know, it's it, it's interesting because that, you know, the, we do get that comparison a lot between the Navy and the civilian nuclear fleet. Um, because actually a lot of our civilian nuclear technology is based on the technology that the Navy uses in their reactors. Um, so, you know, there's that parallel. We are using similar technologies. Um, and then there's also the parallel of fantastic training and workforce development for, um, you know, the naval officers that are operating their plants and then also the people operating our civilian plants. Um, you know, when we look at just the operators for our nuclear plants, you know, they typically work in five-week rotations where it's, you know, one week A shift, one week B shift, one week C shift, and then they have an entire week of just training in the simulator. So they are prepared for anything that can come to them. And that's why, you know, the Navy has an excellent safety record and our civilian fleet also has an excellent safety record. Lots of calls as we talk about the potential expansion of nuclear power. Georgia Power Company has delayed its projected startup for two new units at its Vogel nuclear plant across the state line. Of course, JEA has an agreement with Vogel to supply some of our power from nuclear sources. So give us a call at 549-2937. Jim in Riverside. Hello, Jim. Yes, thank you. Um, I do believe we're going to have to expand our nuclear power capacity. And I think Germany is probably regretting having shut down some of its capacity now that it's more reliant on Russian gas than generating their own power domestically. Uh, so the question I have is about fuel uh, and safety. Uh, I wanted to know if your guests knew anything about thorium fuel uh, power reactors uh, because that will run a small plant, and we have lots of it right here in Northeast Florida. I hadn't heard anything about that, but I appreciate the call, Jim. Dan, do you have any knowledge of uh, that? I think I would uh, I would uh, defer to our other to guests, our nuclear uh, engineer. Okay, yes. Amanda, Amanda. Yeah, so thorium reactors are great. You know, there there is a lot of thorium in the Earth's crust, um, but you know with that's very much still in the U.S. more on a research basis. You know, there are people looking into it. Um, you know, thorium reactors have their advantages and their disadvantages. Same with our uranium reactors. Um, you know, I will also throw out there that if anytime we want to use a new reactor design, we do have to go through the licensing and regulation with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So, you know, that would certainly be Step one, if we ever wanted to build a thorium reactor, is getting the licensing done. And uh, a minute ago, Dan mentioned the cost of uh, this type of energy. We're getting questions about that. Here's one on Facebook from a listener. He says, I support nuclear power, but isn't it true that small nuclear reactors are very inefficient at a small scale? Can you speak to that? Uh, was that for me? Uh, yeah, go ahead, Amanda. Yeah, yeah, and then so Dan. I, I think it's kind of how you define inefficiency, right? Like, are we talking just about cost? Are we talking about, you know, some of the more technical things within the reactor? Um, but I do think that small model reactors also have the advantage of they're more flexible within our electricity grid. Um, you know, we have these really large reactors right now that are typically on the scale of about a gigawatt of power. And, you know, that's great for large cities like Jacksonville. But, you know, if you have a smaller community or even potentially a military base that wants to have their own power system, then small modular reactors really afford you that flexibility. 
Okay. Uh, getting an email about the cost. I think, Dan, you mentioned this a minute ago. Someone just sent us a link to uh, an MIT study uh, saying that uh, the cost of building these kinds of future reactors will be excessive in some cases. What does your research show? So when you talk about uh, projections of future costs, if there's one thing that having written about energy for a while has taught me is that if you want to talk about what something's going to cost in 10 years, um, that, you know, uh, it's, it's incredibly difficult to know. Uh, and if developers of small modular reactors are successful, and that's the big if, in driving down costs through using this kind of factory-like approach, then the cost will, um, their their aim is to get the cost into an acceptable range. Um, um, I, I've watched wind power, I've watched solar power and battery storage costs go from prohibitively, ex- prohibitively expensive 10 years ago to very affordable today. Now, those are very different technologies with very different attributes, but but the lesson is that People get better at making things. They get better at driving costs down. Um, for some reason, we haven't been able to do that in nuclear, but the whole selling point of small modular reactors is that they will be able to do that. Um, and I think that projections of super high costs way down the road, I mean, the real answer is we just don't know. Hmm. Justin tweets the show, I don't see how we get to a cleaner energy future and meet people's needs without nuclear power. Let us know what you think. Questions for two experts on the show today, 549-2937. Randall in St. Augustine. Hello, Randall. Good morning. Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, my question was along the same lines as that previous caller with the thorium because uh, it's an extremely abundant material and it's extremely cheap. And even though the licensing problems exist for developing a new reactor technology, it just seems to me that in the long run, the cost of operation is extremely beneficial. And there's also the fact that the designs are passively safe, so they aren't weaponizable. And they're like, if they got targeted by adversaries in a war, like in Ukraine with the Zaporizhia plant, they would shut themselves down and store the material safely. Mm. So I've always wondered why that never comes to the conversation in general anyways. You know, I'm amazed at how knowledgeable some of our listeners are every single day. And uh, thank you for all the intelligent questions. Amanda Bachman, want to take that one? Yeah, you know, passive safety um, is great within a nuclear reactor for sure. And, you know, that that's not exclusive to thorium reactors. Some of these advanced reactor concepts that people are designing and starting to get licensed will also feature that passive safety. So that way, you know, physics can shut down the reactor instead of relying on a person or an engineering system in order to shut it down. Dan Garino. Um, Yeah, this would fall into the category of technical stuff that I don't really feel qualified to (laughs) comment on. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Uh, you know, we continue to get, it's amazing how divisive this is, uh, uh, lots of uh, tweets and emails saying this is the only way we're going to decarbonize others, saying I'm still concerned about nuclear waste and storage. Uh, here's a comment from Ed. Nuclear waste will may remain radioactively dangerous for many thousands of years. What about this? Um, Amanda, that really gets to the heart of some of your research, correct? Right. Yeah, no, nuclear waste is certainly something we are still trying to figure out um, from a little bit of a technical side, but also from very much a policy side. Um, You know, we have this idea of, well, from a technical standpoint, we know that the safest and best way to store our spent nuclear fuel for, you know, the long time is to store it underground somewhere. So, then the question is, where do we do that? And that's what we're still trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we currently keep the um, the nuclear waste. So after it's discharged from reactor, it goes into a spent fuel pool where it kind of sits there for a couple of years and 
um, some of the decay heat lower, so the radiation is naturally raising heat, and so letting that um, kind of fade away for a couple of years. And then we put them into dry cask systems, and we right now just store it on site, um, you know, with the reactor facility. And, you know, as a as our current answer to the nuclear waste problem, it is a, actually a pretty good one, right? Like we don't have any concerns about someone trying to come steal one of these cats. Like they're they are massive. It is very hard to do that. But at the same time, they're safe. We know, um, you know, the workers at the power plants regularly go out and inspect the casks, make sure that they're not cracking in any way, make sure that nothing is blocking the heat transfer. And, you know, it's it's a good solution for now, but certainly we are working on developing uh, more long-term solutions, such as a geologic repository. 5492937. Sue in Mandarin. Hello, Sue. Hi there. Uh, my concern has been I, I'm getting more comfortable with the idea of the safety, but the cost of bringing a plant online has just been a big uh, impediment. And Vogel's a good example of that. We've invested in it with uh, hope, but it just keeps getting pushed back and pushed back. And that seems to have been what's holding back really getting nuclear energy out as uh, as a as a viable energy source. It just takes so long and so much to get a plant online. Yeah, Sue, thank you. For that, Dan, that's what you've been uh, writing about at Inside Climate News. Of course, we've been following this in Jacksonville because our utility, JEA, actually tried to get out of its agreement with the nuclear plant in Georgia and was not able to get out of it. And uh, these delays are costly. Can you share a little bit about what you know about that? And, um, you know, the Biden administration official said Everything was coming online at Vogel, but that's actually not quite the case. Uh, there will be some more delays on the expansion there. And you have to understand that what has happened at the Vogel plant in terms of the extent of the cost overruns and the length of the delays, like, I mean, this is this is a case that will be taught uh, uh decades from now in terms of kind of how not to do a project like this. Um, and so it's, the hope is that once it's up and running, it will be this reliable part of the power mix for, for, you know, for a long life. Uh, and that the product will be good, even if the process was not good, but, but yeah, um, and the hope is that Vogel is an outlier, you know, that it's it's an extreme example of, for a whole bunch of reasons, um, things going wrong, delays happening, costs increasing. Um, but it is something that has gone so poorly that it's affected an entire industry. Um, and there are examples in other countries, too, of projects that have gone way over budget and way over time. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's I, I don't know, though... I'm not ready to say that this is typical, that this is what happens when you do nuclear power. Um, one of the problems is we don't have enough examples. It isn't like there are 10 projects like this in the U.S. Uh, that we can compare. One reason for that is because this happens. They know this and this has happened with Vogel and um, another, you know, there's another project, a famously troubled project in South Carolina that was abandoned. Um, so... So, so, yeah, it's like these cost concerns are the big issue. I mean, much more so than safety. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's and there's no there's no good answer. Lara, Lara in the west side of Jacksonville. Good morning, Lara. Hey, yes, good morning. Uh, good morning. Go ahead. I heard the uh, answer from one of your guests, you know, from the email about the waste. It's like I told the person to answer the phone. I'm all good with nuclear um, you know, fuel. I'm all good with the nuclear plants. But that waste is just something got to be dealt with. And, and, you know, and I'm, I'm sort of pessimistic about it until that waste has to be dealt with. Okay. Until they deal with the waste. Because that waste is not going to go away. And that's a problem. Thank you for that. So, Amanda, they're, they're in, the, in the eyes of the public, there seem to be 
concerns about the waste, concerns about safety, as Dan is saying, there are concerns about cost. How big of a challenge do you think it will be as a nuclear engineer to get past all of these challenges, all of these obstacles to expanding this energy source in the future? I think these are certainly you know, big challenges that we have, and they're very real challenges. You know, clearly we've heard from a lot of these listeners of, you know, these are things that the average person does worry about. Um, you know, I, these are also things that as, you know, a researcher and the industry, you know, we are actively working on solving this. Um, you know, it's, they're not easy. We're, you know, probably not going to have some solutions in the next couple of years, but we, we are working on it, right? It's, you know, um, you know, especially with the cost, it's, you know, I, I read the um, interview that our other guest wrote with uh, Dr. Huff, and, you know, she talks about, you know, these large-scale plants versus small module reactors is akin to going from building airports to building airplanes. So, you know, it's, should be cheaper, but at the same time, you know, it's going to have some growing pains, right? It's, mm -hmm. Anytime you build something for the first time, it's going to be a little more expensive. It might take a little bit longer because you're still figuring things out, right? It's similar to if, you know, you just start working out for the first time, you know, you can't lift very much, you know, you can't run very far, but eventually like you make that progress and next thing you know, you're running a marathon. So it's, it's something that takes time. It, you know, we'll have some growing pains with it, but it is something we are actively working on. Um, I do also want to say for the waste, you know, that is a very common thing that I hear a lot of people talk about. And, you know, it, it's kind of interesting because this feels like a somewhat unique problem that we have within the nuclear industry because we are very mindful of our waste. We have very... Um, you know, our, our waste is very tangible. It's not emissions into the air. It is not ash going into a pond. Um, you know, it's, it's very tangible waste. But nuclear energy is very energy dense. That means that we get a lot of energy out for a very small amount of fuel. So the waste that we actually produce is far less than any other, um, you know, than, than other energy sources will produce. So, you know, the, the image I like to give a lot is if all of the energy you used in your lifetime were to be produced by nuclear energy, all of that waste would fit into a single soda can. So yes, the waste is there, but comparatively, it's really not a lot that's there. Well, you know what? It's been fascinating to speak with both of you and we couldn't get all the calls on. There's so much interest, but I want to thank you both for joining us, Dan Garino, reporter for Inside Climate News, and Amanda Bachman, Ph.D. in nuclear engineering student at University of Illinois. Really great to have you both. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And much more still ahead later in the hour. How Your Child Can Enter the Jacks PBS Kids Writers Contest this spring. But up next. It's March of 1863, and Jacksonville is occupied by black Union troops. That little uh, window of time has paid big dividends uh, in the history of not only Jacksonville, but America. Three weeks in Jacksonville that changed the Civil War. Hear the full story come to life on Bygone Jacks, Our Unsung History, a podcast from WJCT Public Media. Available wherever you get your podcasts. The debut of our new Bygone Jacks podcast next. The men aboard the steamships John Adams, Boston, and Burnside are brimming with excitement as they make their way up the St. Johns River in early March of 1863. The 1st and 2nd South Carolina Infantries, 
two of the first black regiments in the Union Army, are heading to Jacksonville to make war on the Confederacy and the institution of slavery itself. These men, many of them formerly enslaved in Northeast Florida, will change the course of the Civil War over the next three weeks. Welcome back. Well, WJCT Public Media, in collaboration with FSCJ, are pleased to announce the debut of our newest podcast, Bygone Jacks, Our Unsung History. This podcast was created in partnership with Florida State College of Jacksonville, and the idea is to educate us on rich examples of local history you might not have heard about. We just heard a little snippet. Let's hear about the whole show as we welcome co-host and producer Brendan Rivers. Good morning. Good morning, Melissa. And Jennifer Gray, producer and researcher. She's also the public services coordinator for FSCJ's Library and Learning Commons. Good morning to you. Good morning. Okay, so this first episode sounds like we're hearing about Jacksonville's role during the Civil War. Tell us about it. Yeah, well, and, and I just want to start out by saying this is a really incredible story and is really important to the history of the Civil War. But when I tell people about it in Jacksonville, nobody's heard this story. Nobody knows about it. Uh, and the the, the kind of spark notes version of this is uh, two of the first black regiments in the Union Army are sent to, to Jacksonville and to occupy it. Basically, they're their mission is to uh, harass Confederate troops in the area, go up and down the St. John's River and try to free as many enslaved people as possible, and then try to recruit as many black men as possible to, to join the ranks of the Union Army. Um, and they're only here for about three weeks, and then they're sort of suddenly told to withdraw to support a mission uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, a mission that kind of ends up failing pretty miserably. Um but while they're here in Jacksonville, newspapers across the country are writing about what they're doing. President Abraham Lincoln is taking notice. He's writing about it. And the Lincoln administration points to what happens here in Jacksonville and uses that to, to support a push for the full-scale enlistment of black troops. And, and a lot of historians kind of think that was a really pivotal moment in, in the Union sort of winning that war. Wow. Now, we have another excerpt from Bygone Jacks telling a little bit more of this story. Let's listen. A little after one on Monday afternoon, the 23rd of March, the quiet in and around Jacksonville is shattered. The enemy has brought artillery to shell the town, just as Higginson suspected they would. The two Union gunboats on hand swing into action, firing towards the west. The rebels lob a few more shells in the direction of the town, then cease fire. It's all over in less than an hour, and the quiet returns to Jacksonville. Union forces realized that it was a lot easier to capture the city of Jacksonville uh, than it is to occupy it. And one of the things that Confederate forces would do, the Florida militia would do, is before the Union recaptured it, uh, they'd taken one of the big uh, coastal pieces uh, from Fort Clinch, and they'd mounted it on a railroad car. And they would back that up into, uh, into range of the city of Jacksonville, They'd fire random shots into the city. I mean, just terror weapon there. And when Union forces would go to capture it, to drive it away, you just back it away uh, well deep into the interior. And then, of course, when Union troops would go back into the city, they'd back the railroad car uh, back up there again and, and repeat the process. And it's nothing you can do about that. Uh, just try not to, you know, get hit by these massive falling shells. The day after the attack, Higginson sends several companies of white troops west to tear up the railroad track to prevent the rebel artillery from returning. Unfortunately, the Union troops misjudged the range of the rebel gun and leave too much track, allowing the Confederates to roll their cannon back into place in the dead of night and continue shelling Jacksonville. In her diary, nurse Susie King-Taylor describes that night. The rebels shelled directly towards Colonel Higginson's headquarters. The shelling was so heavy that the colonel told my captain to have me taken up into the town to a hotel, which was used as a hospital. As my quarters were just in the rear of the colonel's, he was compelled to leave his also before the night was over. I expected every moment to be killed by a shell, but on arriving at the hospital, I knew I was safe, for the shells could not reach us there. Several of the shells land in or near what's now James Weldon Johnson Park. As Sergeant Charles Codwell writes, one of the shells even crashes through the roof of a couple's home as they sleep. And in its course, it passed through a stuffed seat rocking chair on which lay the man's coat, cutting off the skirts and forcing them through the back of the chair. 
The window glass were shattered, and two looking glasses hanging in the room were broken, while the occupants of the bed were literally covered in plaster and splinters. These attacks are the only time that Jacksonville itself comes under fire. This is fascinating Civil War history that you probably haven't heard about, which is the whole point of this podcast. Jennifer Gray, uh, how does FSCJ's historical work factor into being able to put this great information out to the world? All right. Well, this is actually an outgrowth of our History of Jacksonville class, which began with a discussion way back in 2018. Um, we... Talked it over a while, had to get some stuff in process, and then around 2020, we really started working on it, myself and my faculty partner, Dr. Scott Matthews. And we've spent two years or more doing research and reading. Um, we've gathered a collection of materials, 24 silent films, almost 100 maps, over 1,000 articles, dissertations, books about the history of Jacksonville. You wouldn't think there's that much, but there really is. Uh -huh. um, so it wound up being a joke with us that we had enough stuff to do two classes because a normal class is only 15 weeks is only so much you can make a student read in one of those courses. <laughs> and we started looking around for different ways to share this material with the community because we just can't cover everything. And so we reached out to WJCT and said, hey, why don't we do a podcast about this? This is the best way to get people to learn the history. And this is sound rich storytelling. It puts you right there. Mm -hmm. Right. We worked very hard. Uh, one of the th first things Brenda and I did was go looking around online for music that was actually contemporaneous. Now, these are obviously not recordings from the 1860s because that was not a thing that existed at the time. But we looked very hard for music that would have been written around that time and was popular during that time. And you can tell a lot of the recordings that you hear are actually pulled from wax cylinder recordings made in the very early 1900s, which is why you get that kind of scratchy quality to them. I love that. So future episodes include a looking at the Northeast Florida indigenous civilization and also Jacksonville's place in national film history. That sounds interesting, too. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I, I haven't really gotten the chance to dive into the, the, the film history research yet, uh, but we're, we're hard at work at the uh, indigenous history episodes, and uh, I'm looking forward to being able to share those as well. Now, this debuts today, uh, and how many episodes total for Bygone Jacks? So we launched the first two episodes today, so it's part one and part two of the, the story that we've been talking about, the, the third occupation of Jacksonville during the Civil War. And keep listening for future episodes wherever you get your podcast, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, well, congratulations to everyone involved. Brendan Rivers, the co-host and producer of Bygone Jacks. His co-host is Tammy Cherry, a professor of English at FSCJ. And then Jennifer Gray, producer and researcher uh, and public services coordinator at FSCJ's Library and Learning Commons, where you also oversee the college's archives, which That's, sound robust. They they very much are. And uh, stay tuned. We're coming up on our 60th anniversary in the not-too-distant future, so you'll definitely be hearing from us about that. Wonderful. Well, congratulations. And everybody, check out Bygone Jacks wherever you get your podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. In a moment, how your child can enter the Jack's PBS Kids Writers Contest. We'll be right back. We will welcome to our number the loyal, true, and brave, shouting the battle cry of freedom. And although they may be poor, not a man shall be a slave, shouting the battle cry of freedom. Announcing Vickers Landing at Oak Bridge, bridging retirees with an all-new Ponte Vedra Beach community featuring new homes, a resort lifestyle, and a life plan for every stage of aging. Information at VickersLanding.com. Join WJCT and ViStar for Teach 2023 on Saturday, February 25th, 2023 at the Hyatt Regency Riverfront in downtown Jacksonville. Tickets are available for $45. For more information, visit WJCT.org teach. I'm Marco Werman. One year ago, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a special military operation. Then he invaded Ukraine. 
Ukraine's president said he wasn't going anywhere. Twelve months later, Ukrainians remain as determined as ever to expel Russia. Our team on the ground in Kyiv brings you the latest on the world. This afternoon at 3, here on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Peter O'Dowd. Farmers in Southern California and Arizona grow almost all the country's winter lettuce, but a prolonged drought on the Colorado River has put neighboring states at odds. When we lose our water supply, we move. We don't have a choice. In a water war, things are going to get ugly. If there's no water, then you have a right to nothing. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at 2 on WJCT News 89.9. What limits should Congress put on artificial intelligence? Law enforcement and private businesses are spending big sums on facial recognition software. Some lawmakers want to put a break on a technology that's raising major privacy concerns. Our guide to AI continues next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back. Well, parents, kids, listen up. The Jack's PBS Kids Writers Contest is open right now, and it's open to any child in grades kindergarten through third who wants to write and illustrate their own story. Your child can submit their story to WJCT Public Media for judging and a chance to win cool prizes. Local winning stories will also compete for the local online People's Choice Award. For more on this very much-loved annual contest for kids, we welcome WJCT Grants and Outreach Manager Cersei Lenoble. Good morning. Good morning, Melissa. So you have the fun job of looking at all of these entries from kids in the Jack's PBS Kids Writers Contest. That's probably one of the more fun things you get to do here. Absolutely. It's my favorite time of year, and I'm so excited when we get our first stories, and we've already gotten three so far. Nice. And it's open now. This is for kids' grades K through 3, correct? Yep. Any kid K through 3, homeschooled, private, public, doesn't matter. Okay. This is something that you want children to not only write an original story, but also draw pictures, illustrate the story. Absolutely. They they color, they design. We've had collage. You know, they can print photos from the Internet. They can take photos. They can draw them. Um, you know, we've had all different kinds, like I said, collage, photos, prints. And what do winners get? Well, winners get, obviously, the awesome recognition. Yes. But um, <clears throat> they also will receive prize bags and will do the People's Choice. And the People's Choice online voting, they'll receive a $100 gift card. And then also we invite the winners to come to our Be My Neighbor Day event on May 13th, Saturday, May 13th, to read their stories live to all everybody who's here. Oh, how much fun. It is It is so much fun. Can you talk a little bit about how this writer's contest is part of PBS Kids' overall mission to promote childhood literacy? Absolutely. Well, I mean, the, we've been doing this writer's contest in at, uh, Jack's PBS since 1994, and, you know, it was the Reading Rainbow, mm-hmm. and um, it has evolved. <clears throat> but it's all, you know, that's what we know PBS is all, PBS Kids is all about. It's about making sure that the kids are ready to go to school and, and developing um, those skills, whether they're social and emotional, whether they're literacy, um, science, um, critical thinking. So it's all, it's all we do. You know, it's, yeah. it's so important to the mission of public media and, you know, it goes all the way back to Sesame Street. That's right. Now, what should kids do to help prepare to enter their submission for this contest? Well, definitely read a lot. <laughs> Find their favorite books and read. Um, but parents can actually go on to the website, wjct.org slash writers contest. And there are a couple guides there to help them practice sheets, some um activities that they can do to get those creative juices flowing. And then they just, you know, they'll find the entry form in the in the rules and just send it on in. And you also have teachers uh, helping out sometimes, too. What What's the role of teachers in the contest? We do. Well, I've had several teachers who will submit a classroom of their stories. Um, in past years, um, we've noticed that um, teachers have used them to help with vocabulary. So we've had a bunch of stories with chrysanthemum. 
Oh, yeah. My daughters loved chrysanthemum. Or leprechaun. Uh Those are the kind of words that, you know, that they were learning to spell and use. And so we got a whole bunch of stories with with those words in it. And so teachers can send either, you know, have their students do it individually or they send it in as a as as a whole class. We have um, we had submissions last year from a uh, charter school in Los Angeles. Wow. Send. Now, does the story have to be a certain length? Or nope. does, it, does it matter? Well, I mean, for K through, for K in first grade, we have a minimum of 50 words, maximum of 200. Okay. And then, you know, 100 to 350 for the older grades. And, you know, younger kids love to draw, tell stories, and then draw pictures next to their stories. So this is fun for kids. They do. I actually still have my book that I wrote called Sammy the Seal about, <laughs> you know, um, hunters, seal hunters and protecting the baby seals from when I think I was in second grade. Nice. So you still have it. That's <laughs> one. Did you show it to your daughter? Yes. <laughs> That's great. Okay. So this contest is live now, but you've got to postmark entries by March 10th to be eligible. Yep. So they have some time. They do. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's a great Saturday afternoon activity. So parents, if you've got a bright youngster in kindergarten, first, second, or third grade, here is such a fun activity for them right now. Have them enter our Jack's PBS Kids Writers Contest. They write and illustrate their own story, submit it to us for judging and a chance to win cool prizes, a $100 gift card, and get to read their story live here at WJCT at Be My Neighbor Day with a video made of them reading their story to the big audience. Well, we right? actually have, we take them into a separate room and have create a video of them uh, reading their stories. It's not the live one, but they get a copy of that as well. So go to wjct.org slash writers contest and get those entries in now. Have fun. Cersei, thank you. Thank you. Have fun reading them. I'll share. You can read some too. I'd like to see some too. Yeah, I really (laughs) would. And thanks for listening. And thanks also to David Luckin, Heather Schatz, Brendan Rivers, Isabella Da Silva, Bridget O'Brien, and all of you out there, drop us a line at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. I'm Melissa Ross. We'll be back at 9 a.m. tomorrow. Make it a great day. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.